please turn in your Bibles or the Pew Bibles to Ephesians for the scripture reading. Ephesians 4, verses 1 through 16. As a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient and bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. This is why it says, when he ascended on high, he led captives in his train and gave gifts to men. What does he ascended mean, except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions? He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. It was he who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, and some to be pastors and teachers, to prepare God's people for works of service, so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of men in their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will in all things grow up into him who is the head, that is Christ. From him, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. The word of the Lord. Thank you, Karen. And thank you, Gita. Good morning. Please join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning gathering us together. And we thank you for your word. And for this morning, we particularly thank you for this part of your word. And uh, help us to understand, open our eyes to what you want us to see, open our minds to what you would have us learn this morning. And may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, and amen. Okay, please keep your Bible, if you haven't already, please keep your Bibles open to that part, because we're going to keep referring to that, and what we refer to probably won't be on the screen. Um, Ephesians chapter 4. There is a ton of stuff in this passage, so we're going to jump right into it. The book of Ephesians is easily divided into two parts. The first three chapters are about doctrine, the great truths of the Christian faith. Verse four, chapter, uh, chapter 4, verse 1 is like a pivot point. From here on, the last three chapters are about how we should live. It goes from the doctrinal to the practical. Now, the word doctrine has negative 
connotations for a lot of people, both Christians and non-Christians alike. It's like dogma or something. It's like unintelligible preaching. It's like something's boring and I don't understand it. But all doctrine is, is a set of beliefs. And it doesn't, um, it, can't, it doesn't have to be a religious doctrine. It could be a set of beliefs of a political organization, a service organization, any number of things. But so many people say, I, I don't bore me with the doctrine and stuff. Just tell me how to live, just as long as we all love each other. But the problem is, what you believe matters, because what you believe then determines how you live. So in chapters 1 through 3, Paul writes of the great truths of the Christian faith. And these are a lot of them are found in chapter 1. God has chosen us before creation. We've gone through these over the past few weeks. We have been given the promise of the Holy Spirit. God raised Jesus Christ from the dead and set him up high above all other things. We were dead in our sins, but by God's grace, we have been made alive in Christ. And we have been made one in Christ, both Jew and Gentile. So Paul begins chapter 4 by saying, as a prisoner for the Lord then, and so if he had stopped there, we would have said, then what? The thing is, we tend to see these sections in the Bible as, uh, that are marked with um, headings. You know, you see your Bible, this part is about grace, this part is about gifts, this part is about marriage, and we tend to look at them as separate entities. But they are actually all connected. Seven times Paul introduces new topics in Ephesians with connecting words like, therefore, for this reason, or then. Because each topic he discusses flows from, comes out of what he has just written before it. It's all connected. So in light of these truths, he's saying then, this is how we should live. And we go from what we believe to our responsibilities. He writes the same way in Romans. Those first 11 chapters are what some people have called are the great manifesto of the Christian faith. It's all about doctrine. By the way, I really like that word, so get used to it. Okay? Um, it's a good word. <laughs> and then from chapter 12 on, he says, actually, he uses pretty much the same words here. He says, therefore, I urge you, brothers, Romans 12.1. And then he talks about how we should live. James Burton Kaufman wrote this in his um, commentary all human morality derives from the authority of God. The ultimate authority for evaluating the deeds of people as either praiseworthy or blameworthy cannot lie within men, but must be grounded externally in the will of the Father in heaven. It was therefore by design that Paul first wrote of Christian doctrine, then of Christian morals. It's all connected. So Paul has laid out our calling as Christians, now what? Well, he says, so you look here at the end of verse 1, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. The Greek word here for worthy is axios, which is actually a mathematical term, and it was used for weighing in the marketplace, for weighing out money, bringing things into balance, or counterbalancing. So applied to our lives, so in other words, you know, what, what was on one side of the scale should be on the other side of the scale. And applied to our lives is, are we balanced? 
does what we say balance out and meet or um, equal what our actions are, what we do? So this is not about being worthy. We don't walk worthy so that we can earn God's favor, so that God will love us. But because he does love us, it is motivated by gratitude and not out of a desire to earn his favor. We don't receive because we are worthy. We want to be worthy because we have received. So next, Paul, going into verse 2, mentions, starts to mention the basic Christian virtues that we need to live the kind of lives that are needed to be members of Christ's church. And the first one he mentions is what? Humility, being humble, ouch. Now there's a reason for this, and we'll see that as we go. There's a, a really long Greek word that he uses here, tapienofrosune. Don't ask me to say that a second time. That was, that was good to get through it once. But it's a word that was actually coined by the Christian faith. Because the ancient Greeks didn't have a word, a positive word, for humility. Humility was something that was despised by the ancient Greeks. They had an adjective that went with it, usually, and it meant something that's slavish, of no repute, of low-minded and groveling. True humility was not recognized until Jesus came along. Because Jesus did not use heroes or kings or Caesar as his model. What did he use as a model? Children, right? He put a little child in front of the disciples and said, unless you become like this little child, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. So the word was kind of redeemed by the church to represent a Christian virtue that was in contrast with the rest of the worldview. And in fact, Jesus, really his only description of himself is in Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 to 29. This is what he says about himself. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. So how do we learn to apply humility to our lives? Well, from one thing, first thing probably is from self-knowledge, which sounds like an oxymoron. Okay, we're trying to be humble and we're focusing on ourselves, but it's becoming aware of our own unworthiness, not our triumphs, not our skills, but our unworthiness before the Lord. It's why we sang the hymn that we just sang beforehand. When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count but loss and pour contempt on all my pride. So we want to see ourselves as heroes. I do. We want to see ourselves with great accomplishments and skill. William Barclay, in his commentary, wrote that true humility comes when facing our weaknesses and failures. The true standard is not comparing ourselves with others, but comparing ourselves with Christ, his perfection. And that's where his grace comes in, so that we are still accepted by God in spite of the fact we can't measure up to it. So humility is putting ourselves last behind Jesus first and then others. 
Then Paul goes into gentleness, or in some translations it might say meekness. And there's a Greek word that's used here, it's called pros. And there's two concepts behind that word. First of all, one concept is it's the medium between two extremes. So the opposite of being gentle is being angry. Okay, so one extreme is being angry all the time, and the other extreme is never be angry. But that word means being right in the middle. It means being angry at the right time. Being angry over the wrongs and injustices, sufferings done to others, but not the insults and the sufferings that you are going through. And the other picture is of a domesticated animal. A horse, for example. A horse has strength and power, but it's been domesticated. The power is under control. It's not that the horse becomes weak when it becomes domesticated, but his strength is under control. And so for us, it's like our emotions, what drives us, our motivations are all under God's control and not our own. He then mentions patience, bearing with one another. Warren Wiersbe describes patience as the ability to endure discomfort without fighting back. Or Chrysostom, back in the 4th century, put it this way, the spirit that has the power to take revenge but never does. It is a characteristic of a forgiving, generous heart. Another way of saying it is putting up with each other's faults because God is constantly putting up with ours. Bearing within one another in love. And of course, the Greeks had several words for love. This is the agape love, right? The selfless love. It doesn't have anything to do with emotion. It's to love the unlovable, to always seek the highest good for everyone. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace, verse 3. Peace is not just the absence of conflict, whether it's between nations or between people, but it's also being in right relationship with one another. Being at peace with God is being in a right relationship with God, which means being humble. He's our creator. We are the creature. Now, Paul has written this passage in a very logical order. Because peace and unity can only happen when the previous virtues are in place. Humility, gentleness, patience, and love. We want to skip right ahead to the peace and unity part. Let's all get together and and get along. But these virtues are all dependent on each other, and particularly on the first one, humility, being humble, getting ourselves out of the way we're not in the center of things. Because if we are true, oneness cannot happen. If I'm at the center of things and you're at the center of things, we can't come together. So this is why later on, this this is why he puts humility first and why later on he uses that other dirty word in chapter 5, submission. So he goes from these six verses where he talks about how we are the same in Christ and now he gets to how we are different in Christ. And here's the the connecting word again. This time it's but. Verse 7. But to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. He's not talking about saving grace now here when he says grace. He's talking about the gifts of grace. These are the spiritual gifts that Jesus has given out to his church, to different members of it, to us. In the Old Testament, God tells Israel if they obey him, he will bless them. 
But the gospel says God has already blessed us. And now in response to his love and grace, we are to obey him. I hope you see the difference. And he quotes Psalm 68. Now I'd like you to keep your finger in Ephesians 4 and turn to Psalm 68. And if you've got one of these blue Bibles, it's on page 902. 902. This is a Psalm of David. And it's about God conquering his enemies. And he kind of pictures God as a conquering king uh, coming back from, from a great victory. So you look at verse 1. He says, May God arise. May his enemies be scattered. May his foes flee before him. Uh, skipping over to verse 7. We'll read the whole thing. When you went out before your people, O God, when you marched through the wasteland, the earth shook, the heavens poured down rain before God, the one of Sinai, before God, the God of Israel. And then down to verse 12. Kings and armies flee in haste. In the camps, men divide the plunder. So God is pictured here as a conquering king, returning from battle in verse 18. This is where Paul quotes. When you ascended on high, you led captives in your train. You received gifts from men, even from the rebellious, that you, O Lord God, might dwell there. So again, he likens God as a king returning from battle with the spoils of war, with the captives, and he's ascending Mount Zion in Jerusalem to a a great welcoming home. But there's one word that's changed when Paul says it. Do you see it? Oops, excuse me. I'm going to lose my place. There's one word that's changed, and that is Instead of saying received received gifts from men, he says he gave gifts to men. Now, why that change? Well, there are several theories, but I think the most plausible one is this, that Paul is quoting an ancient Jewish translation called a Targum. At Jesus' time, very few people spoke Hebrew, and remember the Old Testament was written in Hebrew. The language of the day was Aramaic. Jesus spoke Aramaic. In fact, we can see that even late in the Old Testament, Aramaic starts to come into play. It's becoming a more common language. So that was the language of the day. In fact, when, when Pilate wrote the sign for the cross saying King of the Jews, he wrote it in three languages, right? Hebrew, Aramaic, and Latin. He wanted to be sure that everybody who passed by could understand what was written. So is this an error? Well, Paul notes the difference here because of this between the Old Testament and the New Testament. In the Old Testament, God demands sacrifices and gifts from his people, like the conquering king. But in the New Testament, God shows his love by pouring out gifts to his people. He has conquered, he has ascended, as the king ascends the steps of Jerusalem to Mount Zion, Jesus has ascended into heaven after making the greatest conquest of all. He has conquered sin and death, and so he's pouring out gifts to his people. Last Thursday, May 13th, on the historical church calendar, was known as the Day of the Ascension. It's 40 days after Easter, 10 days before Pentecost, and we know from the scripture that Jesus spent 40 days after his resurrection with his disciples. And so that is the day that the church celebrates 
historically anyway, celebrates that day that Christ ascended back into the glory of heaven. The second hymn that we sang this morning is a hymn of the ascension. It may not have been familiar to, to some of you, <clears throat> although I sense that you were all singing it. You probably knew the tune. But if we could put a couple verses on the screen, <clears throat> I'd like to take a look at those now that you know what it is. It's a hymn about the ascension. Hail the day that sees him rise to his throne beyond the skies. Christ the Lamb for sinners given enters now the highest heaven. And verse 3 goes, See he lifts his hands above. See he shows the prince of love. Hark, his gracious lips bestow blessings on his church below. So that's a hymn of the ascension. This is when Christ goes back into heaven and he's giving his gifts to his people, us, the church. But then Paul wants us to be sure that we that the readers understand something else. <clears throat> he says in parenthesis in verse 9, what does he ascended mean except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions? He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. <clears throat> now notice it's in parentheses. It's sort of an aside. But those verses have caused a lot of debate in the church. In fact, when we had the great questions um, sermon the Sunday after Easter, that's one of the ones that came up. So there's two schools of thought. Did he descended to the lower earthly regions, means that he's leaving his home in glory, and he came down and humbled himself and became one of us? Or does it mean that he descended into hell, as the Apostles' Creed says? <clears throat> Well, there's a lot of good evidence for either one of those, but I don't think that's the point Paul's trying to make. I think he's trying to make another point. I think he wants to make it clear that Jesus existed before all eternity up in heaven with his Father, before he was born on earth, because that was part of the, the false teachings that went around. In the Old Testament, there's two mentions of people that, uh, human beings that were born here on earth that ascended to heaven. In Genesis 5, we have Enoch, God takes to heaven. And in 2 Kings, we have the prophet Elijah going up to heaven in a fiery chariot. Paul wants the Ephesians to know that this wasn't quite the case here. Jesus actually came from heaven to begin with. And that's why he says, what does it mean he ascended except that he also descended? He had to come down here first. He came down here first and then went back up to heaven. He was the son of God. And so Jesus now has a resurrected body, and he can be everywhere. He can fill the whole earth. So now, finally, we come to the spiritual gifts. There's some groundwork that needed to be laid first. Now, he doesn't list very many in this section. There's a lot more in 1 Corinthians 12 and in Romans 12. He limits himself here to the leadership gifts, apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers. Apostles had the highest authority in the church. They had to have been with Jesus. They were witnesses to his resurrection. They were able to work miracles. <clears throat> Prophets and evangelists were itinerant ministers. Their ministry carried them various places. Prophets were led by the Spirit from place to place to proclaim God's word and perhaps prophesy. Evang evangelists were the um, missionaries of the day whether uh, locally or on long mission trips. The pastor's teachers 
were leaders of the local churches. They were the shepherds. And the Ephesians, like most Gentile converts, really needed shepherding because they had been pagans. They needed to be taught the basic doctrines of the Christian faith. They needed to be taught what it really means to believe. They needed to be shepherded so they didn't fall back into their pagan ways or get, um, <clears throat> excuse me, or to get sidetracked by false teachers, which would be a major problem because they were kind of naive about this. This was all new to them. They could have maybe didn't know any better. Oh yeah, that sounds good. So why just these gifts? Well, in verse 12, in this particular place, he says, why? To prepare, or in some translations we saw on the screen, to equip God's people for works of service. Uh, Let me read the whole section here. To prepare God's people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Now, that's a mouthful. That's the reason. So let's take it apart, one piece at a time. To equip or to prepare, there's another Greek word, katartismon. And the root of that word means to complete thoroughly in the context of repairing, bringing something back together, restoring, mending. It's the same word that's used in Mark 1.19 when Jesus calls James and John who are mending their nets. It is used in surgery for setting a broken arm or leg. In other words, the, the idea was that the word was used for restoring something back into the condition that it was meant to be, that it ought to be. <clears throat> what are spiritual gifts? Warren Wiersbe writes, a God-given ability to serve God and other Christians in such a way that Christ is glorified and believers are edified. And Chuck Swindoll put it this way, a spiritual gift is a supernatural ability or skill that Christ gives us which enables us to perform a function in the body of Christ with effectiveness and ease. Now, I need to make two disclaimers, I think, here on Chuck Swindoll's (laughs) definition. First of all, The gifted person may not be the only one that's called in the congregation to perform that function. It just means they're gifted. And secondly, with ease doesn't necessarily mean it's easy. So let me give you an example or two. If you have the gift of hospitality, now people without the gift of hospitality, we're we're all called to be hospitable to Christians. If you don't have the gift of hospitality and and you're called upon to have people over for a Bible study and, and refreshments afterwards, your first reaction might be, oh my gosh, what am I going to serve? How am I going to serve it? I'm going to have to clean the house. I've got to clean the porch. And you get all stressed out. But people with the gift will say, oh, 50 people over for brunch next week? No problem. Or if you're a teacher, if you have the gift of teaching, if you don't, you may be called upon to teach something and your reaction is going to be, I don't understand that. How am I going to do that? I've got to look this up, and I've got to look that up, and, and I'm going to need to get a commentary, and I don't understand what the commentary is saying, and I've got to do this. Maybe I better talk to the pastor, find out what this is about, and so on, and you get stressed out. But it doesn't mean you can't do it. But if you have the gift of teaching, you look at that stuff, you live for that sort of thing. You go, oh, wow, look at this. And, and, and there's these 
other verses and other chapters that go along with that, and you go to commentaries, and that commentary leads you to another one, another one, and, and it's just, you just love going deeper and deeper. And I know some of you have that gift and do it. And the one person that I, I know for sure has that kind of gift and loves doing that is Charles Arian. He loves just digging and digging and researching and researching. But you do that if you have that gift. That's what makes it at ease. Again, it's still work. But you love it. <clears throat> so then he goes into Unity. So that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God. Notice it doesn't say that we all reach unity, period, or in everything. He says unity in the faith, that is what we believe, and in the knowledge of Jesus. Unity does not mean uniformity. There are a lot of mistaken ideas about unity. People in the church, and especially outside the church, why can't the churches just get together? Why can't we put aside all our differences, all our doctrines, and come together. Well, again, to quote quote Warren Wiersbe, unity built on anything other than Bible truth is standing on a very shaky foundation. Notice that Paul did not begin this letter talking about love and unity. He spends the first three chapters talking about the truths of the gospel, laying down the foundations of our faith, and then he brings up these virtues and the matter of unity. Even Jesus said he did not come to bring peace into our unity in the world. Go Matthew chapter 10, starting at verse 34. Do not suppose that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to turn a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, etc. Doesn't sound very unifying or peaceful to me. But his very presence forces people to make a choice. Jesus is a very divisive character. You either have to choose him and choose life, or you choose the world and choose death. There's no compromise in between. Some things are essential, as St. Augustine said, and, and this is a very well-known quote. It's been used here many times before. In essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. And in all things, charity or love. The world doesn't understand that, and we often forget that this is a spiritual unity, not a denominational unity. One commentator wrote, God may have a purpose in preventing structural unity in the church. To keep misdirected efforts of the church, like ambitions for political power, for example, from fulfillment. And the great 19th century preacher Charles Spurgeon wrote this, It is not a desirable thing that all churches should melt into one another and become one. Huge spiritual corporations are, as a whole, the strongholds of tyranny and the refuges of abuse. And it is only a matter of time when they shall break to pieces. He also said, We want unity in the truth of God through the Spirit of God. This let us seek after. Let us live near to Christ, for this is the best way of promoting unity. Divisions never begin with those full of love for the Savior. So if you're confronted by a friend, someone in or outside the church, so why don't churches get together? Here's some of the reasons. Here's some of the things you can tell them. It's a spiritual unity. For Paul, the maturing church is like, likened to a new man. 
He says in verse 13, until we all reach unity in the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. That new man is Christ. And he talks about Jew and Gentile back in chapter 2, becoming one new man. Becoming more Christ-like. Is our goal to grow in our faith and our knowledge of Jesus Christ? This is what Paul writes in Philippians chapter 3. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. And then down to verse 10. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow to attain to the resurrection of the dead. The importance of maturity is stated in verse 14. Then we will no longer be infants, tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of men in their deceitful scheming. We must not be vulnerable like little children to false teaching. Cutting and craftiness, he says, that's kind of interesting, but some false teachers are not just misled, they're intentionally misleading. They're even organized. It happened then, it's happening today. And Satan's first temptation to Eve was, you remember, questioning God's word. Did God say, did he really say you can't eat from any tree in the garden? If we are not grounded in the knowledge of Christ through God's word, we may be inclined to accept erroneous interpretations or compromise God's truth. We are not to be spiritual infants. This is why we really need to be grounded in his word, read the Bibles, bring our Bibles to church. Become familiar with what's in there and where to find them. So you go home, you go, oh yeah, I remember where that is. Because we're going to need it. And the, the, the times are as such right now that it's getting harder and harder. We are bombarded and maybe even persecuted to a degree. And it's probably getting worse. We need to know what God really says. Verse 15. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will in all things grow up into him who is the head, that is, Christ. We usually apply that verse to getting along with each other, speaking the truth to each other. We have a disagreement, an insult, something happens, feelings get hurt. We need to be honest with each other and speak the truth to each other, but in love. But Paul's also applying it here in the context is we need to do that with false teachers to correct them. And false teachings need to be corrected. And there's so much of that. It's so subtle sometimes. It seems right, but it may not be. And also for those who are being led astray, to be sure that they're brought back in. Speak the truth to them, but in love, not pointing their fingers. Okay. And then verse 16. From him, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. Chuck Swindoll said, um, if we're not using our gifts, that part is missing from the, the body, the local body, the local church. 
We are each a supporting ligament, as Paul says, in the body. So Paul has laid out a very practical sequence here for living the Christian life, beginning with what we believe, and then the virtues, beginning with humility, which leads to being able to do patience and gentleness and love and unity and peace. And then we can use our gifts because we are to use our gifts with those virtues. Use our gifts with humility. They're not about building us up. They're about building up the local church. So as the series title is, Why Worship? Not to get blessings, but with gratitude because we have been blessed. He is our creator. We are the created ones. When we humble ourselves before him, that is an act of worship. When we use the gifts he has given us for his glory, that's an act of worship. When we exalt Jesus Christ and obey his word, we are putting ourselves in right relationship with him, and that is an act of worship. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, there's a lot in here. We pray, Lord, that you help us to apply it to our lives. And we leave here using the gifts you've given us with gentleness and humbleness and peace, patience. Help us to recognize when you are calling us and want us to use the gifts you've given us. We thank you that you've called us, that we don't have to to be perfect, and we don't have to be, um, there's nothing that we can do to merit your calling us. But as Paul's written, you have have already called us. And so we come, Lord, and want to obey you because we have already been blessed. Thank you, Lord, for those blessings. In Jesus' name, amen.
Every part designed in words 